Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode 289 of the Distraction Pieces podcast, and man, it's a big one. I'm joined today by Louis Theroux. Me and Louis have been talking about lining this up for a year or so now, so the timing became perfect when his new book was scheduled for release. Um, Gotta get through this, which is the best name for a book ever. Um, I was lucky enough to get sent an advance, or not even an advance copy, a PDF of it. So it's before it even gone to print. Um, So I read a good chunk of it. And then we sat down and had this chat. Um, I'll tell you a load more stuff in the outro. As ever, I'm trying to keep things briefer these days um, in the intro. But if you enjoy this one, if this is your first time tuning in, maybe go and have a listen to the Adam Buxton episode or the Joe Cornish episode. Me and Louis in this talk briefly about um, John Ronson. I did a two-parter with John. There's some good ones there. Um, Give it a look. And... Speaking of Louis's book, I thought I'd, I started last week. I'm going to give away a, a few copies, a few signed, personalised co- copies of my book, uh, the Times best-selling Distraction Pieces podcast book. Um, so really, I mean, you should enter that for free and then go and purchase Louis's book and send that flying up the charts. Um, it's g- genuinely fantastic, but we talk about all that. A few people, I launched this book competition on last week's episode with Kano which the reaction has been amazing to by the way and a few people felt that it was kind of a scam because the way that you enter is you leave a five-star review on iTunes and you write about your favorite podcast of this year your favorite distraction pieces episode of this year and why you liked it and then I'll pick one uh, I'll pick a couple and send out the books and a few people saying that it's kind of a scam just to get people to leave five-star reviews and you know a scam implies some kind of shadowy skullduggery that's exactly what it is i'm i'm in no way am i pretending this is anything other than to get five-star reviews off you guys which then helps us in the charts and all that kind of thing um so yeah that's completely the the point of it dude but it's win-win because you you get to enter to win a personalized signed copy of the distraction pieces book um, it doesn't cost you anything to, to enter, and I get the benefits of um, a, a load of good reviews and being pushed up the charts. So, yeah, what the hell are you talking about? Just go and do it. It's excellent. And I, I said I'll personalise it and write a, a message of your choice in there and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's happening now. But on with the podcast. And as I said, in reality, if your energy only allows you to do one thing, go and pre-order or order Louis's book. Got to get through this through this it's brilliant i love it anyway on with the podcast this is episode 289 of the distraction pieces podcast with louis theroux It's the shortest. I've come up with a ludicrous name for myself, so I can't be too demanding yeah. on how people I'm use curious it. How um, how widely that percolates? Because obviously, people wouldn't. You have friends going back years who would have known you by your natal name. It's your born, your given it's name. It's interesting because which is David. Yes, because I did Google and it's good. 
It's interesting because I, I was known as Pip when I worked in HMV. I, I was using really? the name Scrooby's Pip. It was when I was painting on walls at night, not necessarily after being asked to do so. Yeah. Um, and that's how I took on the name. And yeah, I've, I've started rolling immediately. Yeah, Purely that's fine. But your pu- mum calls you David. My mum will vary between David and Pip. Really? My dad will often refer to me as Pip. So um, it's actually pretty... Have you, have you changed it by... Not by deed poll? No, no, just just by on a whim, and then it's you're st- stuck with it as such. But yeah. Because I heard recently that Buzz Aldrin, his real name, I think, is Edwin. Yeah. But he decided to change it by deed poll. I think he was just tired. He just like he just wanted to embrace the full identity. Yeah, of he's Buzz. so known as that, right? Yeah. So it makes, it makes sense. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. Like, have it on the paperwork. Erase the last bit of Edwinness. Now I've moved into into acting. I was asked a lot if I'm going to be credited as Scroobius Pip yeah. or David Meads, and I've gone for Scroobius Pip because that's how I've felt for so long. If that makes mm. sense, that's been the artistic uh, version of me yeah. s- since the start. So it kind of seems that's to make sense. One where rappers. Oh, so I'm getting, I'm getting off on a tangent, but I, I know you like hip hop. I know you're a rapper. Yes, and um, when they move into acting. So, so Ice Cube's real name is... I can't think of Ice Cube's real name. I know 50 Cent is Curtis Jackson, isn't it? O'Shea Jackson. O'Shea Jackson, it yeah. is. It is. So, but he acts under the name Ice Cube. Yeah. Ice T's real name is Trace. Is O'Shea Jackson Jr. Is it? Who's an actor mm. who played him in, 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 right. in, in Strata Compton. Yeah, yeah. But some rappers then embrace their old name. Like yeah. They don't, they don't uh, act under their rap name. Yeah. So I think that, you know... That it's it's confusing back and forth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it links nicely to one of the places I wanted to start. I've brought yeah. with me here the first ever live review I got. And oh, it was yeah. in Fly magazine in 2006. And one of the reasons I kept it was because of the last line. And it says, It's hip-hop in the same way that Louis threw his documentary. Immersive, eye-opening and very funny. Really? And it was always... Immersive, open. Immersive, eye-opening, eye-opening. and very funny. Yeah. Nice. And I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah. And I wanted to kind of ask, obviously I've been reading your book, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about a lot, and you were a big fan of hip-hop yeah. growing up. Did yeah. you, did, do you, have you ever wished that you were to hip-hop what Louis Theroux is to documentary? I, I, as I, t- I talk about this in the book, don't yeah. I? There was a part of me that would have loved to have um, not just been a rapper, yeah. but to have been a, a black rapper. Yeah. From Compton or the Bronx, the South Bronx, and had that whole identity. Like in a way, I didn't want to be a. I know it's, I don't know if it sounds weird. I didn't really want to be a white middle class rapper. Yeah, no, I feel yeah. And um, <laughs> and, and although I did write some, uh, you know, when you try and write in the hip hop idiom as someone who's privileged, speaking for myself, and, and, and grew up in you know South London, but never really missed a meal, never yeah. wanted for much. Uh, you 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 realise you've got a paucity of experiences to draw upon, and yeah. and how actually intimately bound up hip hop is with the whole idea of struggle, difficulty, oppression, very broadly defined, or you know even if it's just a, a sense of missing out on opportunity, and 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 none of that really came very naturally to me. So then when I wrote raps, it was always comedy rap in yeah. general, 
I think that's the way a lot of... Which is very of, ambivalent of, of about as people. a genre. Yeah, I think it's the way a lot of, of white rappers kind of start out. A lot of Eminem's yeah. early stuff was quite comical and jovial, even right. though he had the hard upbringing yeah. and everything else there. And again, I came from kind of a, a working-class family, but all the, all the early stuff I wrote was like, this raps to my mates and yeah. jokes and messing about because of that slight discomfort or feeling out of place, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I, I always used to read up on rappers and and then you'd find out like we were talking about ice cube he, i mean ice cube grew, grew up in south central i believe but he was actually he studied like he did pursue higher education yeah. he got a degree in architectural rendering yeah. or architectural drawing at a university in arizona i believe at least did a couple of years and i was always intrigued when i would read about rappers and i'd sort of, I'd sort of seize onto little bits that sort of suggested they weren't as deprived as you might believe listening to their lyrics of course, you can actually do both. You can come from a difficult upbringing and be hard, get going to age. I mean, Tupac is a w- brilliant example yeah. of it. Went to the Baltimore School of the Performing Arts, yeah. was sort of going around in spangles and makeup, declaiming probably uh, Shakespeare or doing scenes from the ki- you know Kids from Fame. Yeah, and so there's a party thing like, hang on, that's not very street. But at the same time, single mum with a drug addiction problem, you know raised in manuscripts in the streets. So I guess my point is just, you, all these identities are a bit fictional yeah. while being authentic as well, but I never found a comfortable one for me. It's such a strange genre in that sense because of that, well, how how deprived are you? Mm. How Are you really deprived, yeah. a bit deprived? Yeah. Um, a, a Riz Ahmed is one that comes to mind now because he's a great actor, but I used to gig with him and he's, he's a wonderful mm. rapper as well. And he's had, you know rough times and poor times but then he's had a really good education and things like that so it it's one of them where it sits uncomfortably because yeah. you know like, he knows those areas and those ends and he can rap about them but but if you're doing well it kind of feels yeah it, or, or open to questioning i guess well and i think I, I i'm very relaxed about it now and i sort of think i was a bit in a i was a little bit i don't know some some part of me because i i it's sort of strange part of me sort of envied that what we call, they call it now um, sort of making what they call victim claims. I mean, it's quite a contentious part of contemporary politics where the idea of you, you claim status based on how deprived you are yeah. or what kind of victim claims you can make. Oh, so if you are in a wheelchair, person of colour, um, gender non-conforming, all of those in a certain context give you a kind of power because everyone, really, certainly in certain environments has to pay... It's identity politics, yeah. politics in the end. They sort of have to pay respect to what you've lived through. So I think for a while I thought... I, I felt almost a little bit like, oh, I, I, it sounds ridiculous, but I thought, oh, I wish I was a bit more impoverished and I wish I was sort of... I could sort of claim to claim some sort of status based on not having had opportunities. And then you... And, and resentfully point at the fact that whoever... Such and such a rapper was middle class or whatever, but now I'm, I just I'm very relaxed about that, and I actually think the racial dynamic is so important. And someone once said that the difference between the, the black middle class and the white middle class is that the black middle class is one paycheck away from being yeah. working class, and that uh, you can't den- that the prejudice that black rappers, whether or not you know if they're middle class, their experience of society is is by its very nature different to the to white to the experience of a white person. Yeah. Do you think that was part of the appeal of of hip hop in 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 the eighties or nineties when you were, were getting into it that it felt so so alien and such an insight into a life that 
you at that point may have felt you'll never get to experience or could never see? I think it was a combination of things. I think partly it was the idea of having something that belonged to my generation and that, you know, I don't know about your parents. My parents are fairly hip. Like they grew up listening to, not just listening to good bands like the the Stones and the Beatles and and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, those records be around the house. But also then later on, my dad got into the Stranglers. We went to a Stranglers gig as a family. Wow. I mean, it wasn't a rabid Stranglers fan, but they would play the Stranglers, or mm. Blondie, Parallel Lines was a big album for my parents. And so when hip-hop came along, I thought, oh, I don't think I know if it was consciously, but it felt like here's something that belongs to us and, 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 and that is different to anything that's gone before. You know, it yeah. doesn't feel... So much of what I grew up with, it thought, I thought, oh, I was probably better in the 70s yeah. or the 60s. Do you know what I mean? Completely. We don't really have a Woodstock. We don't really have an Altamont or whatever. Yeah. The, I just thought everything's a bit... Well, we've got is Duran Duran running around pretending they're millionaires on yachts. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or, or you're listening to stuff that was from them. You're listening to Hendrix and stuff like that. Going, yeah. Oh, I wish they were Wish they were around, around now, now, exactly. Or not as embarrassing, uh, uh, you know, around now, not as embarrassing as they sometimes are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think that was part of the hip hop. I think also, I, I just think that for me, the, the, the amount that they sort of shed light on, you know, the best of the hip hop records, when, when it wasn't just party music, when it was actually, they felt like bulletins from the other side of the world, you know, drug dealing, murder and mayhem. And, and I know some people have very understandable moral issues ethical issues i had friends sure. who like were like why how can you listen to this it's just bitch bitch fuck that fuck this but to be honest with you that was my favorite kind of rap yeah, completely <laughs> I, I i feel completely the, the same and, and again it's, it's it's documenting a lifestyle that yeah. would, would at that point have otherwise not been the, documented i think even in its crudeness yeah. and, and rawness it's a very big i know like i sort of see it in it maybe in a pretentious way but you know, there is, it's as much enacting something as it is describing something. So, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, it, it, you have to sort of see it in three dimensions. Like, so, so I, the comparison I sometimes made was um, Andre Breton, the, the sort of patron and leading light of the surrealist movement, yeah. once said that the true this is a sort of misquote. It's along the lines of the truest or the most authentic surrealistic act would be to run out in a crowd shooting at random. Wow. Something along those lines. Yeah. Sounds a bit like a gangster rap. Yeah. Well, it's not a, it doesn't rhyme or anything, but yeah. in a weird way. <laughs> and and what I, now he didn't go out and do that, by yeah. the way. Like, so in other words, you have to build in. If he thought it was really the surrealistic, most surrealistic, well, why didn't he do it? Well, because he knew it was, just, it, was um, it would have been awful. But there was something in that, it was still a cool thing for him to say. I sort of look at hip hop like that. Like, it's obviously awful to go around shooting people and, and yeah. say, like, another less you know one less bitch to want to worry about do you remember that was an above yeah, yeah, the law yeah, yeah one less one less one less bitch you gotta worry about imagine having a chorus <laughs> <laughs> not just Which a line like, you've yeah, written that, that line the, and gone we that should was the hook that. like, that's a good line let's make that the hook it's dreadful but they didn't really <laughs> mean that in any yeah. more than louis uh andre breton anyway that's my take on it i like it i like <laughs> it um keep it on the musical th- Again, I, you can, I like, you, you can tell I've thought about this too much. Yeah, I, I, I like in podcasts trying to find the things that we'll talk about that you're not going to talk about yeah, on other podcasts. Exactly. So 
that gig but, review. But I'm was, curious to know. So, what year was that when you got that, that was review? 2006. And what did you think when you got the review? Did I loved it. You I, thought I, you I was already a big that. fan okay. of, of of your work and your style. I liked how you um, approach things. In uh, curiosity came ahead of judgment, mm. um, and I felt that was important. And I, I that was something I kind of. Although I look back at some of my early work now, I think it's really judgmental. I'm really saying who's doing things wrong or what's wrong with the world. But I felt it was important to more uh, put topics on the table rather than come out like, do we need w- w- one less bitch to worry about? Mm. Or, 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 do, <laughs> or do we not? <laughs> rather than declaring the solution, yes. yeah. you know, to put yeah. it out there. But as, as I said, that gig happened about a mile in that direction. Um, from where we are now in King's Cross, and about a mile in that direction, my, my brother came home after a, a gig, very excited, because he'd spent the gig hanging out with you, um, Adam Buxton, Joe, and Adam's brother, I believe he yeah, said, big at, a, at a Gorky's gig. Yeah, um, that was in Camden, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and he danced with you guys and or went outside and smoked with you, and you signed his magazine he had, and you wrote Angels on Your Body. Did I? Which was a quote from one of the, the Weird co- Weekends. Yeah, that's right, that's right. right. So yeah, I'm always how, relieved when I hear a story like that to, to find I, I didn't behave like a like an ass. No, no, no. There was m- much delight because we were fans of the Adam and Joe yeah, show. We've always been enjoying your weird yeah. weekend stuff. So he was he was most excited, obviously, t- 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 to see Gorky's. Yes, as, as that would have been quite monkey. a while ago, was it? Yeah, might have been close ago. to. They had, I think, they'd lost a band member by then. They might have been. In the late phase mm. of Gorky's. What would you think that was, 2002? Early three? 2000s, yeah. yeah. I'd say even, oh, yeah, one or two maybe. Yeah. It was, it was, was, it was quite early on. But So were you, uh, Gorky's are another one who are, are quite an out there, a, a, a very left-field band. Yeah. I remember the first things my brother played me of them. I was like, you're just listening to this to show off because I couldn't get it. And then there was other bits I got and loved, yeah. but... How like what drew you to, to well, so obscure Adam, well, Welsh bands in the nineties? Like in the nineties, um, I was curious about. So th- this is this is we're moving on now because my my most dedicated hip hop years were were sort of late eighties, early nineties. I continued listening to hip hop, but alongside it, checking out other bands. Adam and I used to swap compilations back and forth. He would he was better about making them for me <laughs> than the other way around. But and he was championing. He he would I think he actually discovered them by accident. He thought he was buying an album by someone else or something along those lines. Either way, he he loved their uh, he loved their music and he put some of it on compilations. And then I just checked them out and I really yeah. fell for them. I don't know. They were filling at that time. They were filling an, a, a sort of, they filled a, a gap where you know there was a lot of I suppose noisy guitar and there was there was dance music and experimental music and Aphex Twin and rap and all the rest of it. And they felt like they were pl- really ploughing their own furrow in a sort of, sort of melodic folk vibe, but with enough sort of slightly prog influences yeah. to, to mix it up a bit. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I just like their personal mythology as well, that they'd started when they were in their really young, sort of mid-teens almost, and um, lived in a remote area of Wales, sang a lot in Welsh. And those first three or four albums, all the way through, there was one called Barrafundal, and then there was I can't uh, Spanish dance something, basically really loved them. Yeah, uh, and haven't gone. Oddly, it's like well, I haven't gone back and listened to them 
as much. You know how sometimes you leave a band, I'm sure they're still great, I just haven't yeah. gone back to it very much. Completely. I think it's uh, so much of it can be the age at which you join something or what you need at that point. I always think that Gorky's felt like the first new band that you'd l- listen to while getting stoned yeah. in a while. In yeah. general, you'd listen yeah. to Floyd and yeah. you'd listen to all these bands from the, the yeah. 70s and they felt like the first, like, yeah. oh, this is an, a new group who we can enjoy yeah, they in that had, way. They were drawing on a very unfashionable tradition, which I, they were kind of quite conscious about, I think. So they would talk about uh, Kevin Ayers from Soft Machine right, yeah. and um, a band called the, the Canterbury Sound from the early 70s which just as a phrase is kind of weird. Like, like, the what sound? But the Canterbury scene, I think, would involve, I guess, people like Soft Machine and a band called Gong and yeah. Caravan. Do you know these bands? I know Gong. Because I went back and listened to some of it. Yeah. And it's, to my mind, quite thin pickings. Yeah. Like, it's not like, where has this been all my life? You buy a Kevin Ayers album and, and then you're like, well, one of them was pretty good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree. But it's a time pre-internet as well where... It would be back catalogues. You would yeah. be. You'd give more time to an album. Maybe I think yeah. now that we're a bit sport with music, so we will go. Well, that's not much good. If you'd no. bought it back then, you might have gone well, on the tenth listen. Right, it exactly. really picks you, up now. You you put it into YouTube or Spotify and and see what popped up. You, when you come back from the shop and you spent eleven or twelve pounds yeah. on a um, on a soft machine CD, and then you put it in and you're like, oh dear, yeah. Let's give it another go. Maybe it's a grower. I need to like this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's out of its wrapper. I really need to convince myself that this is enjoyable. But they also, the bucolic, they had a, a rural, a bucolic vibe that I found very, almost a sort of, they used to sing about graveyards and beaches and the summer and fields and it all felt some, quite reassuring yeah. as well in yeah. a sort of confusing modern world i was living in new york when i was getting into them and then it, it sort of takes you takes you back to a sort of, a, a sort of lost and perhaps a, a childhood that never existed yeah but it sort of feels safe and romantic it's so good when music can do that can make you nostalgic for a, something that you never yeah, experienced in it. the first place yeah. it's that kind of oh i miss those days that are someone else's days which may be the best definition of of nostalgia mm. it's a it's a feeling for the past that you never had at the time yeah completely completely well i mean speaking of kind of in at times enjoying music more in a certain period i find i listen to a lot less music now because of podcasts um are you a fan of podcasts listening yes although i i i I listen to a lot of um i i i'm not as adventurous as i probably should be yeah i listen to them on my bike which i think is safer than listening to music on your bike because music obviously is more of a wall of sound where podcasts there's enough pauses between the words catch to actually if someone's saying like look out like or 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 or, fuck off then you can hear it (laughs) But I listen depends to, on the podcast, I guess. <laughs> if it feels podcast. like that might be suitable. Yeah, the ones I listen to. Uh, the one I I find is my um, my sort of default is This American Life. Yeah, which obviously has been going since the nineties, not yeah. as a podcast but as a radio show. Yeah, and there's enough variety in it that I, I never really get bored. And it, it as a, as a half American person who as someone who's curious about America, I like. The, the stories that they uncover, and then things in of that ilk as well. So yeah. the Malcolm Gladwell series called Revisionist History, yeah. John Ronson's podcast, yes, I like. 
I like Adam's, Adam Buxton's, of course, yeah. his podcast. I mean, Adam's is a really interesting one just because, I mean, you mentioned uh, This American Life and the transition, it being around since before podcasts. Yeah. Um, Adam's is a, a, a curious one. I, I, I love Adam's and I, I listened to the 100th episode mm-hmm. with you and Joe and I was surprised at the end to get a thank you from Adam because I'd kind of forgotten that when he started his podcast, he asked me for a lot of advice on podcasting, which was weird for me because he was one of the reasons I got into podcasting. Really? But the Adam and Joe show in the Ricky Gervais days, they were making a radio show and someone else was turning it into a podcast. So it's there was a, a, a an invisible transition of where podcasts were there, but no one was actually making podcasts. No. They were coming from other things. And then all of a sudden they became their own thing. It was so the it was radio a... show with the music taken out. Yeah. Yeah. To begin with. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mark Marin was another one. Yeah. That was the probably the first one I got into that was a podcast that was just it, from its inception a podcast. Yeah. And also had so in its DNA is podcastness and had that feeling which I had at the beginning of the internet too where oh this is different. Like this, actually, the nature of the medium is created a space for conversations that unfold at a different pace in a different way and get to a deeper truth or a different truth. Yeah, that was back in 2013, probably or 2012. And and his, you're familiar with his yes, podcast, yes, I'm sure. So his deep, his deep sort of con- sort of two hour conversations or hour hour and a half with um with started with other comedians and yeah. then moved on to. Just people in general. So actors and anyone of interest, yeah, really. Yeah. And then obviously uh, an iconic part of podcast history when he had Obama yeah. in his garage. That's right. Uh, doing a podcast, which is is mad. It, yeah. it was a weird moment because it felt like um, a crowned moment for podcasts as a genre. Yeah. All podcasters kind of felt proud. It's like, yeah. oh, we're legit now. Yeah. Um, how long have you been doing... Am I like, can I ask you yeah, questions? Of you course, don't, of how course. long have you been doing yours? Um, I've been doing mine for just over... F- Five years now, I believe. So I've been going a fair old while, particularly with regards to UK, because again, at that point, other than Richard Herring yeah. is one that jumps out, a lot of the podcast were radio sh- shows about the music. Yeah, but I was like a fan of well. Mark Maron yeah. and Joe Rogan, which was a podcast that you went on. Now, how, how did you find that? Because I'm a big fan of Joe. It's been weird how in recent years he's been kind of repainted in the shorthand of social media as an alt-right or an alt-right sympathiser or something like that. And that's not the guy I've been been listening to for years. He no. has people from all sides of the spectrum on, and you can 100% argue that he maybe hasn't challenged some of the more offensive views hard enough. But how did you find it going on there as, as, as a guest? Because it's quite a, a macho atmosphere. He is a commentator in cage yeah. fighting a... Yeah. Big, muscly man. He's a very well put together yeah. uh, man. It looks like he spends a bit of time in the gym. 100%. Not really my natural, uh, you know, that's not sort of how, how, how I spend my, my afternoons. But uh, so basically, I had I, been invited on, and I'm ashamed to say I, hadn't, I wasn't familiar with the podcast. Like, yeah. in other words, I never listened to it. I've been on it twice. So the first yeah. time I went on it, I, I turned up and I thought, oh, it'll be a sort of. 45 minutes to an hour and we'll just chat about this and that and then an hour and 15 minutes in i'm thinking like how, you know how long i didn't i thought it'd be rude to say like how, how long are we going to go for no we're going to be going f- 
for about an hour, by yeah. the way. I'll, I'll let you know oh, to get you. that uncomfortableness out of the way. But the, the, the um, so I didn't. So that was number one. Number two was my sort of natural game. I don't, you probably noticed is to sort of sit back and be quite reactive. Like yeah. in other words, you tell me what you want to talk about, and we'll talk about that. And which works fine if someone's can come with like an agenda or a set of questions. But Joe's much more of a conversationalist. Hundred percent. So so halfway through, I'm like, oh, I'm actually going to have to put some energy into this yeah. because otherwise this could flag. Now that being said, I had it was it, it passed very pleasantly. I enjoyed the chat. He he, I could see he was like intelligent and, and and thoughtful. Had interesting ideas and sort of heterodox ideas as yeah. well wasn't coming from a sort of predictable sort of, I don't know, liberal space. So anyway, when, I, when he invited me back on, by then I listened to a few more and I kind of, I, I got, I was, I was more on board with, yeah. oh, just, and, and enjoyed it even more and, and enjoyed his, um, his sort of maverick sensibility. Yeah. At that time, I think it's unfair to be honest to, I, the idea that, he, you know, he's been uh, sort of labelled a gateway to the alt-right. That's yeah. how he's, Almost as though he's, um, I know, spouting hate or something. I think yeah. he's on the list of some anti-hate group sort of uh, watchdogs, and and, and they, they sort of identify him on a map of the alt right as gateway to the alt right yeah. because he has far right people on. I'd, I mean, I, but my own take on that is that's unfair, and I don't think yeah. that's where he's coming from. And I think he does a pretty good job of curating his output so that the conversations take place on the far right, but also on the far left yeah. and get it all out there. I think that's something that if you've not listened to him, I can understand how that confusion can come in because mm-hmm. you, you, you've nailed it there. He doesn't come in with a long list and plan an agenda. So equally when he has people f- from the left on, he's not going, well, y- y- you said in 2006, this, 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 he's having a chat. So Equally, if he's maybe not prepared to argue against some of the more outrageous claims, then it's going to end up feeling sympathetic. And again, I think there is a danger in it. He has 10 million plus listeners most episodes, which is huge. So if someone says something that's absolute nonsense and it goes unchallenged, that's how things get into the the social psyche, the overall kind of the belief system. Things become common sense as such. But I think it speaks to a bigger issue, which is that we're still catching up with social media mm-hmm. and new media and how exactly it will, uh, you know, how we can, you know, how we deal with it, how we consume it and how we produce it in a way that doesn't create pogroms and um, mass bloodletting. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, yeah. in a literal sense. So yeah, you've got 100%. Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, elsewhere trying to figure out you know, and it's all very well to say, well, let, let a million flowers bloom, like anything goes. I'm a free, you know, quote, I'm a free speech absolutist, which seemed to be like a trendy thing to say for a while. Yeah. Like people just seem to like the idea, like, oh, yeah, I'm not wishy-washy. I'm a, I'm a free speech absolutist, like no restrictions on free speech, which yeah. just as a, in a kind of common sense way is, I mean is like saying, well, so are you fine with someone screaming fire in a crowded theatre? That's the example that always gets brought up. And and, and in a more general way, well, actually, you see what... This has real-world consequences when poisonous, hateful, misinformed and erroneous, you know, ideologies are propagated such that 
masses of people take to the streets and slaughter people, which you know can happen. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of going off on one a bit, but I think we're figuring it out, aren't we? Like it might yeah. be that we need to figure out. You'd have to look at the bulk of what Joe's been putting out there. My take on him that was he was a good guy. Yeah. I mean, has social media has has the boom of social media changed your outlook and approach to 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 how you do your work and how you make documentaries at all? Because there's a, a phrase you use in the book that you're you're sometimes labelled as faux naive yeah, in, in, right. in your approach. Um, again, I don't necessarily agree with that, it, but it, as said, it's the, the putting curiosity ahead of judgment, which is the opposite of how social media has become. It's the judgment first rather than finding any further information. I had um, a journalist, Suad McHennett, on, and she's one of the leading journalists with regards to um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and people like that, and she sat down with these people, and she was the woman who uncovered the identity of Jihadi John. And she has had a lot of hate in the past, but her point is, I'm not sympathising with any of these terrorists. I think they're wrong, but we're not going to solve anything by just saying they're evil. I need to sit down and try and understand why they're acting, because no one, it's not a film. There isn't a baddie who's aware they're a baddie and sits there stroking a cat with a backlight uh, silhouette. So uh, do you feel, yeah, how do you feel it's changed you in that respect? Can you still go in with that almost innocence rather than the an awareness that the audience watching are going to have pre-decided how you should be treating these people? Uh, it's a quite a big question. It's sort of several I mean, le- in length and... and yes, and I, I mean, there's several <laughs> levels to that. So the first part is about social media. And in a weird way, like for me, the biggest impact in social media has been, just on a personal basis, is I'm suddenly aware that I, I have my own kind of publishing house slash newspaper slash TV channel yeah. that's piped through my phone, right, and um, and can reach millions. I mean, I have two million followers on Twitter, probably half of whom are Russian bots, but that's another story. <laughs> and then that can all get retweeted. Like, to go off on a tangent, like, for example, my, one of my sons, okay, took a picture of another of my sons, the younger brother, his penis, right? Which is, I don't know if you've got kids, it's the kind of thing kids do, Completely. right? They've got your phone. And then zoomed in on it so that the penis and balls filled the entire screen, right? Right. You know, there's buttons, share, Twitter, two clicks, right? Two, I, my phone was two clicks away from that being shared with, uh, you know, million, potentially millions I mean, I'm slightly, I find it slightly funny, yeah. but millions of people, you know, and that's such a weird situation to be in, like to be in the point where with technology, you could put out a, a kind of in, a wildly inappropriate image yeah. and, and suddenly be like, Louis Theroux traffics, you know, child porn, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's such a strange thing. So, so that's thought number one. The other thing is, though, so judgment, and, the, and, in, and in terms of going in, I think I always go in with a sense of, I don't know how to phrase it, but sort of, sort of sense of focused uh, awareness of what I'm walking into in the sense <laughs> that it's not like, oh, I, I am, I've got, you know, I make a program about the Westboro Baptist Church or about neo-Nazis or about 
whatever it is, porn performance. I'm not going anything like, I have no clue what I think about this. I'm going anything like, of course it, it can't be right to, to picket funerals of, of, and grieving families. Of course it can't be right to put paint swastikas, you know, in ghettos or whatever. But that being said, you're attempting to go in without shoving your judgment in the faces of the people. Like people at home don't necessarily watch a program to hear me say that for an hour. Yeah. But the deeper question is, well, what series of steps, what quirks of psychology and social conditioning have led to people behaving in this way? Whether social media changes that, I don't know. I think the big change with social media has been that because dissident voices have been amplified, right? Yeah. And, and I include Trump in a way with that, like the idea that a president can say something, you know, objectively and patently racist, and then that finds a, a constituency and he can reach his constituency without, without the media kind of getting in the way of that. Yeah. That creates a very different, you know, I think that's, isn't that, doesn't that relate to this whole sort of so-called populist moment? I think in, in terms of my work, I then have to think about how do we, how do I, you know, what's the place for me in, in all of that? How, how do I, given that fringe beliefs, fringe views are now mainstream, mm. how does my, I think the stakes are raised on how I treat those voices. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. So I'm not contributing in an irresponsible way to a kind of uninformed chorus of bigotry. Yeah. Do, do you feel, I mean, you've spoken, I think it was on, on, on one of your trips on onto Adam's podcast, you spoke of a bit of self reflection and searching in the wake of 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 the jimmy savile yeah. stuff and feeling is there anything that you'd missed is yeah. there anything that you could have pushed do you feel that's changed your approach at all because the, the west baptist church is a, a great example you returned recently yeah. there i loved it but it did feel there was more of a not more of an intentionally confrontational approach from you but uh the acceptance that when members of their group made it confrontational mm. that you would stand your ground yeah. and make your statement rather than whereas previously you may have kind of allowed them to 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 hang themselves on their own yeah. rope as such you'd you'd be a more visible uh, counter to their yeah. arguments do you feel that's influenced things there i think um i think look uh, it goes without saying that if i were to if if i'd gone into the jimmy Savile first one knowing what I know now, it would be completely different, completely mm. different. I mean, I, I did the best with the information I had. I think as far as, um, I think what's also happened is I've grown up a bit and, and I am more aware of, I'm sort of more, a more confident interviewer, but for good and ill, I think. I think I'm probably more inclined to, I don't know, I, I, I don't put up with quite as much nonsense. I've got less tolerance for ridiculous um, yeah. things. I mean, with the Westboro, that's the third time I've been out there. So I, I, I sort of know that it's like a jukebox where you know all the records. It's like, oh, not this one again. <laughs> yeah. And so it's yeah. um, so that's that's what's behind it as well. I, I mean, I think it's 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 part of growing up, isn't it? That you actually uh, you see things a bit more clearly. That being said. I still have things I can't figure out what I think about them. Yeah. To be honest with you, yeah, and, and that's okay though. And, and that's I do an my best. Admission because yeah. I think it's so tough in social media times that we need to. Yeah. Or I, I keep referring to it as social media times, but this kind of this era of 
everyone has access to everything. Therefore, yeah. it's it's deemed that they should have an opinion on everything. Yeah. I think it's really important to say, I don't know about that, rather than, well, here's my opinion, even if it's unresearched. When is this going out? Uh, this will be going out in September, so with the books. So, so we're recording it a couple of months in advance. Okay, so, so, so when this has gone out... So I've got a programme, it might have been out by the time this goes out, yeah. about... Um, uh, women who work in the sex industry, for want of a better term, uh, escorts, they sometimes call themselves sex workers. And I really couldn't figure out, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a divisive issue because some feminists will tell you there's no woman who willingly chooses that. That's a symptom of, of patriarchy. That is a side effect of a culture that places no value on women except as sex objects. And it should be you know, made illegal in every which way, you know. Mm. And then there's another feminist line that says there are women, women aren't chil- are not children, they are not infant, they should not be infantilized in a neo Victorian way. Yeah. If a woman is not mentally ill and is making a free decision to, to sell sex, that's her, that's her lookout. And, and how dare you be so patronizing and paternalistic to, as to judge that. And I really, I was sort of stuck in the middle a bit as far as, and I only mention it in the context of judging, you know, finding an editorial line. Because as much as I go in with an open mind, I am trying to draw some conclusions. But as a result, all the way through, I slightly was going like, I really didn't know what to think about this. And and, and the fact is there are going to be examples to to back up either Mm. side of it. I'm I'm very much on the side that a woman's choice is her choice and so on and so forth. But there will be examples where women have been clearly exploited and coerced and not been doing what they want to do. And again, sex trafficking and sex work are two completely separate things that often get put together and confused. But I'm talking in, in sex work in general, that there will be that exploitation and there will be particularly the old form of the porn industry before it was kind of torn apart by by Pornhub and all these other things was very much a male-dominated m- men behind the scenes making all the money, cashing all the checks and, w- and women being more exploited in that respect. But, yeah, it, you're going to be able to find things on either side to back up the argument, so it should be okay to... Say I support this side, but I can. I think the key. I spoke about this with Sarah Pascoe, and the thing that we kind of came to was r- realizing that people on either side, they're, they're trying to do the best for people. No one is attacking you because they hate you or think you're horrible. They've, they're, you're normally form your opinions with the thought that this is what's best for the subject for all involved, yeah. and then that's something that can then be debated, educated on, and. And gone back and forth, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating one. Um, it, yeah, exactly. It's and then sometimes you you can't please everyone, and mm-hmm. and sometimes you yeah you just do the best you can, and what happens happens. How's um family life influenced it all? I think when I was talking to Simon Pegg, he was saying how it really makes you realise the things that you want to do. If I'm here, I'm I'm away from my kids yeah. and my family and. This has to be good. And I can imagine that shortening a fuse at times when you're going, I've heard this a million times. I'm not having the same argument. I'm away from my family for this. But you do have to be immersive in the way you work. So I'd imagine that means long periods away from your family. Well, I've got rules. I've got I talk about this a bit in the book where, and and the work-life balance is not always easy, especially when you have small kids. We, uh, my wife and I, we sort of established 
a rough rule, a working rule that I wouldn't be away for more than two weeks. And even two weeks is pushing it. I don't often go for two weeks. More typically, it'll be eight or nine days. I think you're exactly right that um, you you become more focused. I mean, I sometimes think I I wish I'd had children earlier because what you never have is that feeling of like, I'm not really quite sure what I should be doing with myself, which I had in my 20s a lot. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, what should I do today? I really don't know. I guess I'll wander around a bookshop or, you know what I mean, go to sleep in the park. Now it's like, it's it's constant triage. You haven't got a time to do anything. And when you're at work, there's no pissing about. You just got to stay focused and it's like, well, what do we actually need to do and get done by the end of today? Let's focus on that. Uh, So it's, I mean, I compared it once to a kind of benign uh, form of, of, of bondage or, or servitude, you know, where your free will is removed. You don't really have the luxury of making many choices yeah. as a parent because you've basically got to be there for them, you know, unless you're sort of subcontracting out a lot of the responsibility to nannies and au pairs and whatnot, which we have chosen not to do. So, so you're there, you know, school, usually, if not school pickup, then certainly... After school, you know, making a meal, putting them down, evenings and mornings and weekends, and suddenly your life um, has a sort of logic. It's got a point. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah. I mean, we, we've got three and we're kind of completely overwhelmed, and yet I, <laughs> there's a part of me that would like another one. I just know it would... It's almost like... Keep your show Make it even more <laughs> leaner and meaner. Yeah. And it's the other thing is that I think it's a lot like cults too where... They say with cults, a lot of the control is um, a result of constant busy work. Like you're, you don't have you don't have a single moment to sort of reflect or think about to anything. Question it. Yeah, you're going door to door selling magazine subscriptions, or in the Moonies, they would famously, I think, stand on street corners and, and sell uh, flowers. Westboro, they, they, they those pickets, other than spreading the message also have the function of meaning that every spare moment of their lives is accounted for yeah it's like what are you doing you can't just sit around like staring at the clouds you've got to be on that street corner wearing a stupid waving a stupid placard saying um fags eat poop or something (laughs) yeah and and so i think with that it's always like that with the, the, the upside of that is your life i mean they say about heroin addicts as well their lives are sorted because all they need to worry about is getting the next fix Everything else yeah. is a sort of, um, all those other problems melt away. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Which is ideal when you're in anything in the world of arts. Because yeah. the question is always, as soon as one gig ends, so what am I going to do yeah. next? Yeah. What do I do? If you've got a family there, I'd imagine, then yeah, it's like, well, that's not a question. Yeah, exactly. Got to get back. I'm already in trouble for not being home two days ago. <laughs> um, how how has things changed your decision-making when doing um, investigations or documentaries from having a wife mm-hmm. to influence how far you want to go on things yeah. through to having children and maybe thinking, again, as they get older, are they going to be embarrassed of their right, dad? Are they point. going to be picked on? Mm. Um, you touch upon it kind of in, in the beginning of the book yeah. with the recent um, the yeah. central feeding yeah. experience and an uncertainty of if you'd gone too far, if you hadn't yeah. gone far enough. And it's interesting because... There's earlier work where it would be deemed that you went a lot further. You yeah. were on yeah. porn sets or yeah. whatever, and top, off. naked, yeah. all this coming. Totally kind of naked. Yes. How's that changed? Is that 
are they the key influences or do you feel it's just again another you're growing older you're getting maturer i don't know it's funny when i think back you know when we made the first weird weekend about the porn industry Mm. there was a part of my a little voice in my head saying like well you really need to be thinking about going all the way like this was a voice in my head right yeah i mean there was a part of me that was very puritanical in terms of the commitment puritanical is not really the right word but it almost had a sort of a level of zeal and a, and, a, and a sort of pure a sense of um, that I had to push it as as far as I could possibly go, yeah. and and that and I should you know I was like should I be thinking about having sex on camera, and and then another thing was voice was sort of saying like well that that'd be really pretty weird and probably quite off putting for most viewers, so the <laughs> idea of me stripping off felt relatively almost tokenistic like I didn't feel like I was pushing it that far. I love the relativity of it yeah. again at the start that might have seemed a lot but it, compared to, me, to having where full I, sex where on. my mind had gone uh, the idea of me being naked felt well that's straightforward no yeah. no ethical issues there you know really yeah. I mean you kept a hat on for most of the time right yeah. so that's I did yeah some... I didn't actually and the other part was like the um, I didn't um, I didn't get wood as well, like you know, you technically for the yeah. for those shots that the porn agent take for people who haven't seen the show, I get the main porn agent takes a picture, a Polaroid of me in the back of his offices, and he has an album yeah. which he shows to directors who come in and say, "Here is our new talent. We got this guy and that guy." And my porn name was uh, Sir Lancelot. I don't know why. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> and then so I got this new guy, Sir Lancelot. And so the idea was they took three or four Polaroids and you were supposed to actually be in a state of arousal in order right. to show the quality and, I suppose, size of your instrument. Mm. Uh, and I thought, like, I don't want to get actually go that far. So I yeah. just sort of stood there and waggled my penis and then they came and took some snaps. But it didn't, I didn't particularly feel like this is, I'm really going out there. But in your early 20s, actually I was probably 26, in your mid-20s, I don't know about you, I just sort of felt, I felt like I don't really care about, that's not the right way of putting it, I just thought, I wasn't really thinking long term. Yeah. That's, maybe that's the best way of putting it. I mean, it's interesting because you touch upon this again in your book when working on, on, on with Michael Moore on, yeah. on TV Nation, um, and there was a point where you had thought it might be funny if, when you're interviewing these, these Ku Klux Klan people, you, you wear a robe. That's right. And he... Again, as someone who has pushed That's the boundaries right. and will push the boundaries, he said to you, you don't want that picture existing. Yeah. And it's it's a similar thing there, right, of going, well, for the story, it might be best if I have f- full sex on camera. Yeah. But then in reality, there's that, you don't want that out yeah. there. You don't want that existing. And actually, I think, I mean, I think this would have occurred to me at the time. It's not actually really brilliant for the story either. Mm. But I think if, you're, if your investigation is into the ethics of, what it means and the potential damage of what it means to take uh, to sort of take the sex act, your most most intimate human act, and put a price on it and do it in front of cameras, and also that many of the young women are damaged and vulnerable. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sort of speaking on the. F- it's interesting to reflect as well that you know we talked about John Ronson earlier. Yeah. I noticed on Twitter he got a bit of a hard time from some people for saying. For, for taking what pe- some viewed as an overly um, positive or rose-tinted view of porn in general, the porn mm-hmm. lifestyle, if you like. And, and, and a lot of us are like, well, 
you know, John, would you actually, what, would you be a porn performer? And, you know, if you go out and do it, then I'll take you seriously. But until then, your opinion doesn't count for much. Yeah. And so the one thing I would say that uh, stripping off and doing the Polaroid felt a little bit like, in a, but in a small way, it inoculated me against a little bit of that. In other words, I lost my dignity in a way somewhat that was helpful. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, I do know that when I did it, there was an amazing thing that happened whenever I showed another, or when I showed a porn performer that Polaroid, which I did, for some reason we shot it out of sequence. I think it was a scheduling thing. So the Polaroid scene took place on the second or third day of filming. And right. as a result, there were several, quite a few interviews with porn performers afterwards. And I would always, either during or at the end of the interview, show them the Polaroid. I don't know why. I think just to sort of make them laugh. <laughs> yeah. And it always melted them. Like the minute they saw it, there was this moment of like, they would suddenly relax. And, be, right. and it was like, okay, you, you, so you're different from other journalists. Yeah. And you're not up above there presuming to judge us. It, I mean, they didn't say that, but that was the feeling I got. So it create, and, and I think that was true for the, that participation that ran through a lot of weird weekends in general. Although I conceived it as a kind tongue-in-cheek thing. Yeah. What it ended up being was something deeper, which was this um, almost shortcut to building rapport. Uh, and, and it was quite... And I hadn't really thought about... Even the rap one I did as well was the same thing. Yeah. When people saw that you were up for getting involved, it changed the whole dynamic. Yeah. So so, so how do you feel that's changed in, in, in recent work? Do you feel the, the limitations you maybe would choose to put on yourself or even the... The, the 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 doubt you'd have after you've done something if you've gone too far. Do you think that's down to uh, greater responsibilities and more people that are influenced by your action, like directly being your family? And I think well, I think it's something simpler than that, which is that we, at a certain point we took on stories that were more serious, yeah, in which there were the stakes arguably were higher. So the idea of, sort of participating would have seemed really weird. So, for yeah. example. And there were always a lot of conversations about how, how the participation would take place. So, for example, the, in, the, in the one about Head for the Hills, I participated by spending a night with a militiaman on a hillside and another night in an underground home and then helping a guy build a... So these just, these just sort of little activities that I got involved in. Then three or four years after that, I made a program about Nazis called Louis and the Nazis. Yeah. And I can't go around being a Nazi, you know, like the idea of me like goose stepping and saying like, am I being a Nazi now? Is this how you do it? (laughs) Would be ridiculous. Wouldn't it be obscene? Yeah. So at that point you say like, well, the only participation here is the sense of being immersed in their world, spending long hours traveling to places, you know, pursuing a sort of journalistic relationship that feels deeper, uh, that licenses me to ask more intimate questions. And then moving on from that, Doing a, doing programs about Westboro. I mean, the part, you know, or, or or people in mental hospitals or people in prison. You know, the idea. So you do a pro- program about San Quentin. You know, you don't want to be in a like. Oh, I decided I needed to spend a night in a cell to really experience it. Yeah, it's a kind of meaningless. It's a shtick. In that yeah, way. that's yeah, not yeah. going to actually tell you anything about what ten years or twenty years in prison is yeah. like. Um, so I would do small things like I'd sit down with them and eat breakfast. Like, oh, the food's not very nice, is it? But really, when the stakes are as high as I've, I've been sentenced to three hundred years in prison because mm. I 
broke into people's homes and tortured them. That's a much more interesting conversation than any, and my participation is just going to get in the way of, of that conversation. Yeah. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course. So you just move into terrain where, I think at a certain point I made a decision where I was like, you know what, I can either do keep doing sort of funny participatory stories that are a bit light, mm-hmm. or I can actually accept that I'm doing stories where the stakes are so high and the stories are so extreme that they don't re- any participation from me would feel silly and inappropriate. Yeah. So we went down that that road. Yeah, completely. Um, in 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 your book again, you you speak about uh, when you you first watched a particular cut of one of the TV Nation bits, um, and you realised that the the what made it good wasn't confrontation. It was it was your politeness yeah. or awkwardness or out of placeness. Yeah. The I mean, you describe it as not looking or, dr- or dressing or sounding as yeah. if you should be on TV. After you'd realised that, and after you started to have more success and become more known, did you have to keep an eye on whether or not you were playing the role of Louis yeah. Theroux or being Louis Theroux, the kind of the keeping it real or keeping it real as such, to try and... Was that a conscious thing you had to look That's at? That's a good all? question. You know, and I think that was a deep thing for me because... I hadn't really realised what an unlikely TV presence I was when I got hired. I, and, and I've said this before, but the truth is, like, I really did think that I might be able to be like a normal, funny-ish journalist. Yeah. And that was sort of the aim. And then uh, when I looked back, it was only later that I realised, oh, it's all the things that I think are a bit shit about me yeah. that are actually kind of a bit somewhat interesting when, when combined with a certain level of acuity and journalistic focus it's like it's, you can't be completely hopeless yeah. you know what I mean I was sufficiently focused and sort of briefed and thoughtful and inquisitive to, to have a sort of ju- a certain journalistic line of inquiry that I would stick to but alongside that was this sort of slightly weird whatever my physical attributes are and I, I in t- whether or not that I think I did a little bit steer into that, steer into the the skid of, okay, you know, asking questions that I knew were silly or faux naive. And sometimes, like, sometimes that's just funny. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, completely. And and so when, so, I mean, an example that springs to mind is I I did a two-parter about Miami jail, called Miami Mega Jail. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm down with, like, the, the inmates at Miami Jail. That, yeah. I, I mean, I'm quite clearly out of my element, but I'm also and I'm also not at pains to look like I'm hip to what's going on. Like the whole point of me being there is to ask questions that yeah. might seem to them ludicrous or stupid, you, you, but reflect you, a kind your of, tape and your Polaroid aren't going to help in that situation. They're not going to help. One of the things that came up was that they're like they're saying, um, "Oh, I, I, I went into a cell." And, and and a bunch of the guys were there. And, I, and before I'd gone in, two of the COs, the correctional officers, had said, um, a guy was shanked in here. He was stabbed last week. But we never found out, you know, they never spoke about it. And, and he was pretty badly messed up. So anyway, we went in and we're chatting away. To, there's 12 to a cell. They're quite big wow. cells. They're all bunks. Very brutal, yeah. certain part of Miami jail. They would beat each other up a lot and knife one another people perceived as snitches or whatever anyway chat 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 about this and that and then i said um 
I said, I heard someone uh, got knifed in here last week. They go, yeah, that's right, man. It was a teller, man. Motherfucker got shanked because he's a teller. We don't take, we don't handle, no, we don't have no business with no snitches. And then I said, who did it? And then there was this weird atmosphere, like, you know, you don't ask that. Yeah. And and I and and I thought it was, and actually, I think it's quite funny. Like it's a funny moment, and I only asked it because I knew they wouldn't answer it. But I just thought I'm not going to. I'm going to. Is that a phone naive question? In a way, it is. It's like I think it's important to. Sometimes like, you just got to state the obvious. And if that comes across as faux naive, um, then so be it. But sometimes you just got to say, actually, yeah, who did shank the guy? Because it seems to me, uh, you know, it would be helpful to figure out who that was. So yeah. uh, the necessary steps could be taken <laughs> to discipline <laughs> yeah. him. And, and you know we what I mean? We really need to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I want to, I think inquiries should be ongoing. And, and, and I, I'm very, I'm very happy to be the square guy. Yeah. Because nothing offends me more than when I see uh, a, a kind of journalist trying to be hipper than he is or she is or trying to be more down or, or just sort of seem like they're really au fait. I find it very alienated when two people are having a conversation like, you're like, I can't figure out. These two people seem to know what they're talking about, but I have no idea what they're yeah. on about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just be the square guy asking the obvious questions. That would be, like, the best advice I could give any journalist. Completely. I, I, I refer to it on, on the podcast, because I do it regularly, of, 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 of the Alan Davis role. Yeah. Because on, on QI, it's his job to ask the simple question that we're all asking at home, yeah. all us non-high-level intellects, yeah. and everyone laughs at him and says how stupid he is, but... Then the question gets answered. Yeah. And that helps everyone else. And, and people it's that- don't... It's like you said, Emperor's New Clothes. It's like the people... No one wants to be the one who appears not to know or people pretend that they know more than they do. And then... Yeah. But when someone finally says, like, hang on, what what, what actually are you all talking about? Yeah. Because I've totally lost the thread. And then as an audience, you're like, finally, someone's <laughs> saying what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, uh, one more th- thing on kind of... On, on being in those situations... Have you worked with the same crew and DOP a lot? Because it feels like it's important to have the few people that are there with you uh, have someone else there to kind of double-check the limits and how far you should go and how far you shouldn't go and kind of confirm or or, or maybe pause things. Uh, well, the short answer is no. I've had different crews over the years. I would love to have had the same. Yeah. DOPs, directors, and whatnot. I mean, for for twenty years. But uh, what you find is talented people who are good at their job kind of get knocked upstairs. It's a bit of an yeah. odd. I feel like a teacher, like not a teacher. That's not a good analogy because I'm not. It's more like the feeling, like maybe it's more like a pupil's been held back year after year. Yeah. And all the other graduating classes move on, and I'm just like, it's like, who's that guy? He's got to be forty years old. What's he doing in high school? Like that's yeah. me. Yeah. So well, more like the janitor rather than a maybe teacher. Maybe I'm the janitor. If, if you don't want to feel like a teacher, there we the janitors go. are Yeah, maybe cleaner. I'm the janitor. But it's that <laughs> feeling of like new... So when I started, like I was 23 at TV Nation and most of the producers uh, I worked with, because they called them producers, it was a sort of directorial role, but they were all probably in their 30s and 40s. Yeah. And, and now I'm 49 and my directors are still in their 30s and 40s. Like I went from being like much younger to quite a bit older and it's been an odd journey, but to answer the question, no, I haven't been able to take people with me because they they move on to other things. And and but 
in terms of being, I mean, it's always good to check in with your crew about how it's going. And yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy the work is that you, unlike writing, which I find quite a strain and it's quite lonely, when you're making a TV show on a documentary on location, you've got your director, you've got your, who's usually shooting, you've got your sound recordist and usually a producer or an AP. So there's four of us, including me. And that process of figuring things out and decompressing afterwards and talking about how the day's gone, I find really valuable. Yeah, yeah. But they don't sort of say, they don't sort of say like, oh, you went a bit far or you were a bit hard on that. And it's not so much that or, or steady on. And they don't really suggest lines of inquiry so much. It's more just a feel. It's a sort of a big feel for the story. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely, completely. Well, I mean, you touched upon writing there. How's that been? Quite working strange. on your book, particularly. I mean, you you talk a lot in 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 the early parts of the book of of how part of moving into TV was to try and not have to write or or, or to, to live up to your yeah, father well, as, true, as, yeah. as an author, but in a different medium that's to try and right. go look. I can achieve here what I maybe couldn't. I could yeah. never achieve your level yeah. in in that area, but that's look right. what I can do over here. Now you're in that realm and shadow how's, how's well i tell you what so so one i quite i've written two books this is the second the yeah. first one the call of the weird came out in 2006 i think 2005 and it's no coincidence that it's taken me 13 or 14 years to go back i write about what a strain it was writing the first one actually that's yeah there's a chapter about that and i this time i quite consciously did it alongside making programs because mm. i i had a feeling that i I would find it too demoralising if I took six months off and focused on writing. I, I, I find writing in it... Uh, OK, the first draft, if you like, I wrote quite easily and quickly. But then I sort of had to go back and try and make it good. Yeah. And um, that was a, a lot of strain. And there was a moment when I realised, oh, I think this is like actually a personal memoir. Yeah. It's not well, just about... Well, that's, that's why it felt kind of bigger... In, in in my view, because the first book was felt very much as an, an accompanying piece that's right. to the TV shows, yeah, whereas right. this felt like the first that yeah. this is obviously it references and tells stories all along yeah. route, but this is its own thing. This yes, isn't is. the 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 extra bit. That's you know? right, and I think it adds. I'd like to think it adds value. Like I think you could read it and you're like, oh, maybe for good or ill. Like oh, so that's what he's like. Yeah, he actually is a kind of it's like emotionally. One of the themes in the book is how emotionally disconnected I am. Like I write several times using different metaphors about how I experience my emotions. And one time is like I did soundings of my own inner depths about how I felt about a relationship. No clear, no clear signal came back. And there's wow. another bit where like, when I ran an audit of my feelings, you know, I wasn't sure what. You know, in other words, it's that I don't think it's a male thing. Like I can't figure out a lot of time what emotion I'm actually experiencing yeah. at any particular yeah. time. Other than big ones like fear and anxiety, yeah. you know, certainly the, the romantic emotion, like, is this love or, or is this uh, or, or is this a feeling of, like, falling out of love? Yeah. Or is this or, – or what actually is it? Shouldn't I know? And so there's things like uh, – for me, like, it's very revealing and self-exposing, but on, on another level quite fun because it's something that you can't do on TV. Like, on TV, my presence is slightly – curated and cryptic you know yeah. it's a sort of it's a i'm i'm both central but also marginal and i'm in the shadow of whatever phenomenon 
I'm investigating. But in the book, I'm much more centre stage and I'm, and I'm figuring out what I feel about my, my life and loves and my, you know, a lot of it's dealing with the fallout from Jimmy Savile, for example, yeah. and the feeling of horror of, of, of discovering kind of what he'd done. And, and, then, and then elsewhere, it's sort of the feeling of, um, you know, what my life kind of means, you know, if that doesn't sound too grandiose. Yeah. And, and w- why, um, why I've drifted into this form of work in which I have these sort of relationships with journalistic subjects which feel quite sort of fulfilling. And then at the same time, I'm sort of confused about so many aspects of my own private life. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. It's, I, I I love the way you it turns you kind out of, I'm a bit of a fucker. I, I, I love the way you speak about the feeling there. I'm I'm currently um I'm doing a class and I'm learning. It's an acting thing, but it's learning the kind of passed down teachings of Laban, uh, taught by a guy called James Kemp. And in that, we kind of it breaks down that the four things that we do, and we, and we'll all have a stronger one that we're natural to a. Um, Thinking, feeling, intuiting, and sensing, mm. and we normally have one that is us, and we can access all the others. And I love the fact that for you to access feeling, you have to really go deep into the thinking of going. Yeah. So, what is it I yeah. feel in this? I mean, yeah. it's, it's not feeling is meant to be quite a natural one, but if that's not your, you know, the the, the strongest part of your character and your identity, yeah. then you. You can still access it, but you might just have to go other routes. And I you think have that's to a great get thing in to... I, I think you're, it's almost like sometimes you notice different voices in your head sort of saying like, you're, you, you know, you're on your way to somewhere like, one voice goes like, look at that stupid man. Look at his, look at his ears. They're ridiculous. And then look at that hat that guy's wearing. That's absolutely insane to be wearing a stupid hat. And then, and then, and then, and then what I do is like, oh, I think I'm in a bad mood. Yeah. You're right, you know, you have to gather bits of evidence. Yeah, yeah. To, to figure out... You, you, you're doing your an investigation yeah. into your own like, feelings. I, I, like certain clues, uh, <laughs> I've noticed certain clues that suggest I might be experiencing an emotion. You've uh, got a little Louis in your head saying, yeah. so why do you hate that yeah, man's yeah, hat? Yeah, what's your problem with that guy's ears? Like, you don't normally care much about people's ears. It's not really a big thing with you. Yeah, who stabbed him? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, um, I'll... I'll I'll wrap things up now. I've got two things. I've got a load of things I didn't get to talk about, obviously, because that's the way these things work. But there's two things that I want to just quickly touch upon. And one is more of just a thank you, because the particular episode of Adam's podcast, where you and him drunk energy drinks and sung, is, I think, as important a moment in podcasting as Obama going on Mark Maron's. It's just nice to hear that. It's just so much entertainment and the genuine competitiveness yeah. of of the two of you. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the thing I wanted to kind of end on is kind of t- 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 talking about that. How nice and rewarding is it? You speak, you spoke of how nice it is. One of the things you like about having a the director, a sound technician and a producer is having those people to bounce things off. Mm. How nice is it to have had a career where you can watch t- some of your school friends also coming up and having these careers in Adam and Joe and... Yeah to go back on Adam's podcast and it'd be this amazing success and yeah. to watch Joe doing amazing things yeah. in directing. How nice is that to kind of go, it's amazing. oh, look at my mates. Yeah, Isn't it's amazing. And, and knowing that, whether you acknowledge it or not, knowing that they're, they're looking at you in yeah. the same way and going, oh, look how great Louis doing. Look at my, how, but, and how, I how t- Louis. And, you, and, and of course, and, I, and in the book, I talk about, the, so there were some lonely-ish years 
as a, as a young uh, as a as a boy certainly uh, 11 12 13 14 15 I were not brilliant years for me yeah. in, and not so much family life I just really mean in the context of school um I I, I was sent to a couple of schools well one in particular I talk a bit about academic crammy type schools and I sort of I didn't I sort of to an extent had a you know I was accelerated at Westminster where yes. I went and and I had a few years of being this sort of sort of uh, totally work focused sort of geek figure um, it was never my whole identity I always was cheeky and mischievous and sort of in different ways but it was a it became a kind of dominant flavour of my life. And when I discovered, and I talk about this, when Adam and Joe appeared, along with other friends who I'm still close to, but especially them, the, the, they kind of opened my eyes to a whole, you know, just not, but both a kind of powerful and on, an enduring friendship and, and, and a side of life and a way of looking at life mm-hmm. and a kind of effortless creativity. You know, I, I suppose if I look back on it, I think creativity to an extent was, was something that, you did at school or you did in certain formalized ways by writing a poem or I don't know, you, or you read, a, you know, you saw it was something contained within a book and with Adam and Joe, it was almost like their creativity sort of burst the banks of those yeah. forms. And they would, so they would be doing silly skits or improvised performances or whatever it was, or, and, and had a much more free, free flowing appreciation of kind of, What's I guess it's termed pop culture, but sort of movies, TV shows, yeah. music, and so I I really owe them a lot. And the only downside was when I came to get hired on TV Nation, and I talk about this as well. My main thing was thing was like because I got hired in T, in TV before either of them did. It's my, right, it was you know they I can't remember what I think Joe was probably working at Tower Records and Adam was working in local radio maybe Adam forgive me if I've got that wrong but and and it was weird like going I remember thinking like why have I been given a, a, a TV job you know going around in America being on, on network TV in America when actually I'm the I'm I'm the least funny of, <laughs> of, of, of the three of us yeah. do you know what I mean yeah yeah completely. it felt very I was it was slightly undermining to my morale yeah yeah <laughs> having them in the wings thinking like this doesn't feel right but i feel it's really been gratifying sort of and i always knew how talented they were and to see the world recognize it and especially i suppose in a sense and actually to see it ongoing because joe's attack the block came out maybe six seven years ago but he was he was it was 40 odd when yeah. it came out yeah and which is relatively late. Adam's podcast. I mean, they've been successful in other media, but Adam's hitting his stride with his podcast, yeah. which is is only going back four or five years. It's brilliant to see them doing it now and and how well they've done. Yeah. And one other thing on that, when, at times when I was writing my book and I thought, oh, do I have to open up the door on my personal life? And um, f- forgive the, the chinking, clinking of the, this tea being made, evidently. <laughs> but um, the. Um, I thought like I'd be all right talking about this on a podcast. Why can't I write about it? And that wow. sort of that was quite freeing. Yeah, like I'm, I talk about my personal life, my wife, my family up, upbringing with Adam on a podcast. So why shouldn't I talk about it in a book? Yeah, so that opened the gates a bit. Yeah, that's really good because again, it's the the beauty of I mean the podcast format in general is often so conversational mm. and less pressure. But even more so if it's 
your old mate from school who you used to record little mini radio yeah. shows with or whatever else or little yeah. fake interviews. It's going to open the door to you opening up that bit more almost without you realising it. Yeah. It'll be out there before you go, oh, I maybe wasn't ready for that to be out there, but look, it's all right That's and right. it's standing up and nothing's crumbling. Hopefully. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's thank been you, Pep. I really enjoyed by. it. Thank you. Cheers. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I loved it. I loved sitting down and chatting with Louis. I've been a big fan of his work for a long time, so it was good to to actually sit down and chat. And as I said, Got to Get Through This is out now. So go and get it ordered. And also, I can't remember if we mentioned it in the podcast or not, but Louis' visits on Adam Buxton's podcast, I think a perfect podcasting every visit has been but the one specifically where they drink energy drinks is my favorite bit of podcasting ever so go and check them out i can't recommend them enough um a few things that i wanted to tell you about number one uh, uh, where lizards is back um this coming a weekend the 28th and we've got get cape where cape fly coming down to to spin some tunes um, other things I need to tell you about. Me, Chris and Stu of Hardcore Listing and, dr- 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 and Drunk Cast fame all went on Kate Thornton's White Wine Question Time. So it's essentially a drunk cast, but it's run by a professional because Kate's an amazing host. And she's just, she, I can't say enough nice things about Kate. I thought she was absolutely wonderful. Um, so yeah, I really r- r- recommend you go and check that out if you're missing the drunk cast vibe, because we're not done one this year. So this was kind of a mini drunk cast. So go and check that out. And she has like proper famous people on this. So it'd be good if we get at least a few listens. Yeah. So there's that. And also obviously the pod Bible podcast. I know I go on about these things a lot, but really it means the world to me that so many of you are going and listening. Um, I really want it to be a regular part of your weekly podcast podcast listening the reason that we keep it to 20 minutes or so is so that you can smash through at the beginning of your week the beginning of a journey it comes every monday or it's also it's that the way i describe it in one of the advert things i did is that we see it as a um, a meal supplement rather than a meal replacement to your your weekly podcast diet and it's 20 minutes or so long because there's always that bit i always have i'll be at the end of a journey and I'll finish a podcast, but I'll be towards the end of a journey. I, I won't want to start another hour-long one or two-hour or three-hour. So that's where the Pod Bible podcast sl- slots in perfectly. And what happens on the podcast is we sit down with three different podcasters each week, and we talk to them either about their podcast or the podcasts that they love. So you get some, you get to hear some behind-the-scenes on a podcast you may or may not have heard of, and you get some recommendations of podcasts that you may or may not have heard of. So yeah, it's really good fun. So go and give that a look. It would mean the world. Obviously, we do Pod Bible magazine, and the new one is out beginning of October. So we will be doing personal handouts of that um, 
in Brighton, London. We'll see where else we can get to. Margate again, maybe. So, um, yeah, all the good stuff there. Is that everything I needed to tell you about? I think so. Um, Again, if this is your first time tuning in, I mean, if it's your first time tuning in, you probably wouldn't have stuck around for all this nonsense I'm rambling at the end. But if it's your first time tuning in, go and listen to the Adam Buxton episode and the Joe Cornish episode and the John Ronson episode and maybe the Stuart Lee episode. You know, there's loads of good... Loads of good ones in the back catalogue. So go and dig deep in, dig deep in. And again, as ever, the um, the book competition I mentioned in the intro. All you need to do, if you thought I'll listen to this episode first, all you need to do is go and leave a five star review on iTunes and write which distraction pieces episode this year has been your favourite. I mean, this outro is appalling, isn't it? I keep forgetting or where I am, and what I'm saying. But, um, yeah, you leave the five-star review, you're right. The episode from this year that's been your favourite and why it's been your favourite, and then we uh, we take it all from there. Anyway, I'm going to go. And I'll, Oh, next week's guest. Oh, it's a good one. Next week, I'm joined by Jack Sexsmith. If you're not familiar with Jack, he's he's a wrestler, but he's a wrestler that recently had to retire because of injury. And he's got a hell of a story. He was the amount he's done for LGBTQ or whatever more letters are necessary to be added. I'm I'm all, all for all of them. Um, he's done so much for that community in the world of wrestling, which is a a world that I mean, as you'll hear from the conversation, isn't always a welcoming of of these things in all areas. So uh, yeah. That's a great one, I promise you. I think we go for about t- two hours on that. G- 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 genuinely, we get into it. So, um, yeah. I wonder if I'll sp- be best to split that into two. I'll think about it. I'm talking too much now. This is the end of the episode. This has been the Louis Theroux episode. I've been waiting for this for so long, so I'm so pleased that you guys have got to hear it. Um, I'll see you next week. Ta-ta.